The Once and Future Nerd is independently produced. If you're enjoying the show and would like to support us, visit onceandfuturenerd.com support to find out how you can help. Listening to this show on an iOS device? Leave us a rating on iTunes, please. Nerd. Book One, Princes of Jordan. Chapter Seven, The Last Douchey Domicile. Episode One. Most forests emerge gradually from the surrounding landscape. The white forest erupts from the plains like a volcano from the ocean. The trunks of the whitewood trees grow so close that a human could barely fit a finger between them. The carpet of razor vine, which coats and connects the tree trunks, stops even that finger from reaching through. Over the years, the elves have worked to accentuate the appearance of a wall. Where the tree bark has been shaved off, the sun glints a blinding white Elven artists have shaved beautiful patterns and designs into their walls, accentuated by plates of carved silver and gold. The main gate, 100 feet tall and wide enough for 20 horses abreast, is flanked by watchtowers and parapets. By design, the land surrounding the forest wall is kept barren, so that no approach from any direction can go unnoticed. This morning, a small cart bounced along the road to the main gate, as fast as its old horses could pull. The cart was spotted at 900 yards by an elvish sentry. At her signal, a bowl-shaped mirror was turned towards the sun, and flashed a message across the sky. Other watchtowers spotted the signal and repeated it. A hunting horn sounded, and every archer on the battlements knocked an arrow. Within the cart, Brennan and Jen clung to consciousness, but just barely. Billy administered to the girl, applying ice to her wounds as best he could, while Nia tended to the old knight. Hang on, Jen. Come on, Weenie, floor it! They're horses. They don't have any paddles. It's a metaphor, crotch hole! No, it isn't. Both of you be quiet and ice Jen's throat. I need to focus. At least the cart is holding up. Nelson! God damn it! Don't talk about equipment until the job is done. As if on cue, the rear axle of the cart began to creak and groan. In the old times, they used to believe in wood sprites, water sprites, whatever sprites. Where I come from, we believe in fuck-up-your-plan sprites. And fuck-up-your-plan sprites have one sacred, unbreakable law. You do not talk about equipment you're depending on. And if you blaspheme against the fuck-up-your-plan sprites, they will fuck up your plans. I've met sprites of all sorts. River sprites and wood sprites, sprites of war and of love, even one sprite of terrible jokes. I've never met a fuck-up-your-plan sprite, so I cannot tell you if they are real or not. Regardless, some force of nature seemed to honor Regan's augury, as precisely at that moment, 
The cart's axle shattered entirely. This cart won't make it to the gate. If we take Brennan and Jen on horseback, and the rest of you hoof it the last quarter mile? Go. We'll be fine. That same morning in Castle Guernatal, Arlene and Gwen lay huddled together in Arlene's bedchambers, half asleep and recovering from the previous night's horror. As if she could hear Ricard's screams in her dream, Gwendolyn awoke suddenly. What is it? Frantically, Arlene's right hand grabbed Ricard Redmore's knife, surreptitiously stowed under her pillow. Are you all right? With her left hand, Arlene stroked her handmaiden's hair, calming her. Milady, have you had a bad dream? Only gradually did Arlene's right hand loosen its grip. Maybe, can't remember. My poor Gwen, what you've been through. Arlene returned the knife to its hiding spot and hugged Gwen close to her. I'm so sorry. You know we need to leave here, don't you? But we can't. Why not? Be serious, Gwen. I thought about it all night. The wedding is our best chance. Maybe our only chance. You know, your brother's men love their wine. You must know now that I would do anything to keep you safe. I know, Milady. I saw you last night. Who knows what you'll need to do next? But this is madness you're talking about, and likely suicide. I've seen what it's done to you to stay here. How is it not madness to let that continue? How is it not suicide? After tonight, we will live in Lord Mooncrest's house. Have you considered that your brother might try to keep me here? I swear to you, Gwen, I would die before I left you to him. That's what I mean. I don't want you to die for me. I want you to live for me. You're speaking in riddles, Gwen. I might not have all the right words, Milady, but you do understand me. You do. Maybe life will be better at House Mooncrest. Will you be happy there? I don't know. You have the most beautiful soul I've ever seen, Milady, And it's been starved and strangled all your life. Gwen put her hand over her lady's heart. I can hear it crying out for help. Can't you? Yes. Milady, look in my eyes and tell me what you think your life will be like at House Mooncrest. With a deep, almost determined sadness, Arlene met Gwen's gaze. Lord Mooncrest has shown me great kindness thus far. Behind Gwen's eyes, her heart dropped, but she didn't look down. But... I do not know the man. It was Arlene who looked down. I don't know his motives or desires. I would need to trust him. And if you tell me you do, I will follow you to his house and serve you dutifully the rest of my days. But I don't think you will say that. Gallatin, help me, Gwen. I don't think I can trust anyone anymore. Save for you. Then come away with me. And after we left, how would we eat? Sell all the jewelry we can carry out of here? That will last us maybe a year or two? That's longer than we've ever had. That's assuming we aren't murdered and robbed. And after the jewelry runs out, then what? Don't you think I considered this every day of my youth? I thought, tomorrow's the day I run away more times than I can count. And why didn't you? I grew up, Gwen. No, Milady. You was just beaten down. That's different. I'm wise enough to know which feelings there's no sense in speaking. There's always sense in giving our hearts a voice. Even if it's just to ourselves. Please, Melody, especially today. 
Let's not pretend about anything. There's such terrible anger in me, Gwen. But it's hopeless anger. There's nothing out there for me. No way for a lady to survive except to continue being a lady. Nothing to sell but herself. I would never let you sell yourself. Not like that. But when all's accounted for, what's the difference? That a whore can be free of a man come morning? A lady's husband is supposed to feed her, clothe her, shelter her. And in exchange, she gives him her body, her children. And she's named a shrew if she doesn't give him her heart and mind as well. Good man or not, that's what will be asked of you at House Mooncrest. You know that. Anywhere we go, Gwen, we'll be at the mercy of one man or another to survive. Surviving's not the same as living. This is a world of men. They chart the course of all lives. Then let me be your man. What does that even mean, Gwen? I can do anything for you that a man can. You can't hold lands unless you inherit them. Do you have any noble kin you've neglected to tell me about? I can work. I've been working for you these last ten years, done almost any job you can name. And I can learn any others. I've heard in the cities women can make a living as garbage collectors. Garbage collectors, Gwen? Have you forgotten that your parents sent you out of their home to us? That they would rather lose their daughter than see her live the life of a worker out there? I'm sure I've never forgotten that, Milady. And before you say it, I haven't forgotten what that life is like, neither. That was before I knew you. You know how I feel about you, Gwen. Do I? Or do we hide from each other behind proper words for fear of the bastards who run our lives? I... You know that you're the bright spot of my life. That doesn't mean we can live happily thereafter if we run away. I don't care about thereafter. I'd rather live well than long. That's what I realised in that pantry the other night. I'd rather die after one happy week with you than spend the next 40 years slowly watching you die. It's one thing to say that, Gwen, but to actually face it... I had three days sitting in a dungeon I never thought I'd leave to think on it. So please, Milady, believe that I know what I ask. Is it ten bells already? God's damn the bells. The bishop will be here soon for the cleansing. Then God's damn the bishop. Gwen. Why must our lives be run by everyone but us? I must get ready. I realized something else in that pantry. Gwen closed her eyes as if it would make the next part easier. I love you. Gwen. I, I love you the why I was always told I'd love a man one day. I didn't realize until the pantry, but now that I see it, I know I've loved you from the moment I met you, and I'm just as sure that you feel it too. The windows didn't suddenly shatter, but you'd be forgiven for fearing they would under the hurricane force of this elementally simple sentiment. You don't need to say it back. Say nothing for now if you must. But I beg of you, don't lie to me. Grant us a moment of not pretending. I don't know what to call it. I don't know what to do with it. But 
I know I'm scared of how strongly I feel it. Of where I feel it. Then come away with me. I'll figure out how. Just be ready. Permit us one chance at happiness. They were interrupted by a knock on the door. Gwen, however, would not let off. Her eyes remained locked onto Arlene's. I offered up my life for us without a second's fault. Do this for me. Live with me. If just for a while. Arlene hesitated for only a moment before frantically nodding her head in agreement. A smile overtook Gwen's face as she quickly, passionately kissed her lady before diving away to some chore. Hiding her own smile, Arlene turned and opened the door. At the gates of the White Forest, the approach of two horses was closely monitored by a good dozen elvish sentries, longbows armed. Yiluin and Regan each rode a horse. Jen and Brennan were tied across the horses like sacks. Five paces from the gate itself, Yiluin reined in. Kaas, Yiluin Sim, Keltil Loguel Natal. Thus announcing himself to the sentries, Yiluin dismounted his horse and approached the gate. He maintained eye contact with the nearest sentry and displayed his open palms, fingers splayed in front of him. When the Kaltir reached the gate, he extended his hand towards the sharp razor vine which clung to the wood of the gate. In a quick motion, Yiluin drew his palm across the plant, drawing a trickle of blood. The blood dripped off the vine and into a wooden receptacle below. Far above, the sentry peered down through a reed, as if he could somehow inspect the blood through the device. Whatever the sentry saw, it satisfied him, somewhat. He nodded to his comrades. Ligi lo pratia, kiad lo Oh, sorry. Allow me to translate. Have I not passed the blood trial? Verily you have, sibling woodsman, but wartime protocols are in place. Well, do I know it. But even in wartime, my blood does not change. The forest is my birthright. And yet with children of men do you travel. As the elves negotiated, Brennan, now fully unconscious, fell off of the horse's back. Regan needed all her strength to haul the large old man back up. Regan, of course, could not understand Hilig, and was beginning to lose patience with their lack of admittance into the forest. Problem? There's no problem. I'll handle it. The elf returned to speaking Hilig. I am a Kaltir. Of course it is with children of men I travel. Of course, but what is their need to enter the forest? Here, two loyal servants of the realm lie, gravely wounded in their attempts to maintain order. Medicine is needed. And those other three walking behind you? Retainers of the wounded. Of hospitality, they are also in need, though less dire. Check with my superiors, I must. To you, I am known, sibling woodsman. The child of Wien Lo Dick and Bat Lo Il am I. Yes, to me you are known, but they are not. Please, sibling woodsman, much longer we cannot afford. Now Jen began to slip off her horse, her face turning a disturbing shade of blue. Yiluin barely grabbed the back of her shirt to keep her from hitting the ground. No problem? Really? Seems like a fucking problem to me. On my name and my house for their passage, I vouch. Elven culture places a great deal of importance on the concept of family honor. And truth be told, 
It was quite rare for an elf to risk even his own honour, let alone his family's, for the sake of a human. Despite his surprise, the sentry raised his left fist into the air and flashed a signal with his hand. Open and closed, open and closed, and suddenly a team of elves was pulling at a winch, and the gate slowly, ponderously creaked open. Moments later, the unconscious forms of Brennan and Jen were lifted into the back of a golden cart by six elves dressed in identical silver robes and veils. Regan and Yellowin stood behind, although Yellowin exchanged some final words in Heelig with one of the veiled elves before the cart was drawn away into the forest. What'd she say? They'll be seen by the best physician here. But? She made a point of not promising anything. And she advised that prayer couldn't hurt. Let's go, then. Without a second thought, Regan turned to follow the cart, but Yellowing darted in front of her. Excuse you. I must insist that you mind your manners while within the forest. My people will not suffer a daughter of man to profane this sacred place in any way. I know when to keep my head down, okay? I have dignity, not stupidity. Do you know what happened at the gates? You shed blood on that tree and it wasn't good enough for the guy at the door. Seems to me like you weren't elf enough for the elves. This verbal jab may just as well have been a slap. I vouched for your passage on my name and my house. For as long as you're here, your crimes are mine and your debts are my family's. Counter to all good sense, I have staked my family's entire reputation on your behavior so that the children may be helped. Do not betray my good faith or we shall all be truly beyond hope. The elf and the rogue locked eyes, neither one breaking the gaze. The tension was broken, as it often was, by Billy. Yo, w wait up! Where's Janet? Is she okay? I was wondering if y'all ever arrive. Yeah, well I had to stop off real quick and throw your mom the old- <laughs> Regan elbowed Billy in the gut, hard, not once looking away from Yellowin. She raised an eyebrow at the elf, as though asking if he was satisfied, before addressing the doubled-over boy. What's the matter? You out of breath? I thought you'd been training. Come on. Jen's this way. Sometime later, Yellowin found himself in an area of the forest whose name translates roughly to Hospital Waiting Room. Or the name translates more directly to Place of Boredom and Death Stench. But my bacterial compatriots in your realm tell me Hospital Waiting Room is a better idiomatic translation. Like everything else in the White Forest, this room was shimmering. Vials of luminescent liquid lined the walls. Periodically, an elf in silver robes and veil would emerge from a back room, take one such vial, and return from whence she came. Yellowin was conversing in his own language with a high-ranking physician. To give these substances to men yet typical, it is not. There lies the last retainer of a great house of men. No typical Memyet is he. A tremendous price would these fetch in the human realms. Fit to pay it, he does not seem. Known to you my parents are. Repaid will you surely be. It is not as if this medicine grows on trees. Apologies, wise one. It was my understanding that they... <laughs> Forgive this physician's morbid humor. Of course this medicine grows on trees. You see, the elven medicine in question was indeed derived from the sap of a particular tree found only within the White Forest. It did literally grow on trees. This fact, although well known to most elves, was not widely propagated among humans. This was intentional on the part of the elves, 
although Yilluin only just now noticed the oddity in that. Very clever, Taid. It really, does though, appear- I will expect payment by Moon's End. My daughter has requested that we extend our home so she may have a second playroom of pure whitewood. The medicine may grow on trees, but wealth certainly does not. For additional information and bonus content, access onceandfuturenerd.com on your computer machine. New episodes are released every other Sunday. The Once and Future Nerd is written and created by Zach Glass and Christian Madeira, and directed and edited by Christian Madeira. It is performed by... Rhiannon Angel Garrett Arman Dan Dobransky Lily Drexler Anya Gibeon Ian Harkins Paul Notice Frank Quares Julie Reed Gregory M. Schultz It is co-executive produced by Jess Kelly. Alex Story is an associate producer. The Once and Future Nerd is recorded by Brian Forbes at the Gallery Recording Studio in Brooklyn, New York, with second unit production sound by Gary O'Keefe. Foley sound design and mixing is done by Sandra Ramirez. Theme music is composed by Tom Lee. Thanks for downloading. 